You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. National Signing Day has come and gone for the Gators, and there's some interesting trends for the Gators roster. We'll get into it here on this episode of Gators Breakdown. Super Bowl's coming up. You can get in on the action at MyBookie. Double your first deposit. Head to MyBookie.ag. Use promo code GATORS to get that deposit matched. Bet anytime, anywhere with MyBookie. Want more Gators Breakdown? Join Gators Breakdown Plus. Starting at $3 a month, get access to unique episodes, plus a blog, chat room, giveaways, shoutouts, and more. Gators Breakdown Plus is furthering the interaction with fans and listeners like you. Head to GatorsBreakdown.SupportingCast.FM to join Gators Breakdown Plus today. Gators Breakdown. Because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. If you're watching live on YouTube, or if you're watching on YouTube, you see, you see three squares this time, not, not just two. Joining me tonight, co-host Will Miles. You can find him at his site, readingreaction.com, on Twitter at WillMilesSEC. And our good friend, Bill Sykes, joins us. You can find him on Gators Breakdown Plus. Some message boards out there. You won't find him on Twitter. But uh, Bill Sykes joins us right here again on Gators Breakdown. Will, Bill, uh, Will, I'll start with you, man. But uh, got a comrade back for no, uh, another episode. Absolutely. I mean, the people are demanding more and more Bill Sykes. It's funny. Every time he, you know, we're in contact with him pretty much constantly. So, you know, every time Florida went down by three touchdowns, we immediately got a text message from him <laughs> this past year. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's great to have you back, Bill. It's great to, you know, have you over at my site with a new article. I'm sure we'll talk about that tonight. And, uh, you know, good to get the three amigos back every once in a while, at least talk about old times, but also new times now that we got Billy Napier in the house. Absolutely, man. I'm, I'm broadcasting from a safe house in Central Asia, and I uh, didn't know how the reaction was going to be to that article, and and I had played safe, but here we are, united again, huh? Yeah, so it's, it's Bill Sykes Week uh, on, on Read and Reaction and Gators Breakdown. So, of course, Bill's great work put up there at Read and Reaction uh, on yesterday, detailing Florida's putrid offensive line recruiting performance, however you want to describe it. That's your it. word, Here's, Dave, not mine. <laughs> that is my word. Okay. Uh, the, the article said that in just in different terms there, Bill. So, uh, yeah, right. But Bill put that up at Read and Reaction there on um, – uh, on the site, uh, on the YouTube channel, you can check out Will, Bill, and Nick there 
detailing the article a bit more as well. And we got Bill here tonight on Gators Breakdown to go over this Gators roster. We'll get into that offensive line because it does play a huge part in this Gators roster. Uh, when, when you look up and down the list uh, at, at you know just all the positions uh, there on the field. So we'll get into so, some recruiting talk, roster talk, uh, and how it all breaks down here. But, Bill, man, what, what you've been up to, let everybody out there know. Hey, look, there's another perk of Gators Breakdown Plus out there, by the way, is Bill Sykes is on the Gators Breakdown Plus Discord. So a lot of good conversation going on there uh, as well. Hey, yeah, I love uh, hanging out with those guys and chatting a little football. And sometimes we agree, sometimes we don't, but they're a fun bunch over there. And um, – it's great to chat with them all. Southern Gator, Carlos Danger, of course, Soderquist and the gang are in there, and uh, Fenestrator, all those guys. Uh, but, yeah, I, you know, I, I got the itch to write again, and uh, so I did it. And uh, kind of like Will says, it's a curiosity applied to college football at reading reaction, and, and I got curious about the Gator offensive line situation and, and down the rabbit hole I went probably like never before, uh, and it just kind of came together nicely, and here we are. You have been sending us nuggets for what, like the last <laughs> what, month, month and a half, I guess, probably somewhere around there. Yeah, I mean, I think you could probably apply the the, the preface, Dave. You're not going to believe this about every text I've sent you in the last three months. <laughs> and sometimes I text both of you, and be like, guys, what in the world, you know? But it was really interesting, though. It really was, and I learned a lot. And that's the, that's probably the best thing about doing what I do when I do it is that. I go in with a suspicion and I just start pulling numbers. And sometimes that's confirmed. Sometimes I have to shift. Sometimes it's just dead wrong, but I learn every time. And then as we kind of go forward with every brick we lay in this wall, I feel like we're all of us and not just us, but everybody that's in this Gator community that researches these things, we're, we're getting a little bit of a clearer picture as the, the months and years go on. And it's, it's really interesting looking back how much we've learned in the last four or five years. Here's the thing. We all knew offensive line was bad. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't think you can that now. <laughs> so it's just, it's just like- yeah, if you haven't read it yet, definitely go to Read Reaction after this episode. Get his breakdown. Read it. You'll get into even more detail. We'll but public service more- announcement, there's yeah. a lot of sunshine pumping in that article. And that's why I hope people aren't scared off by the title because the, the end of it is like yeah. some really exciting news. Uh, the the other thing is it's, it's, not just a, it's not just a stars matter. Article. No. It's not a no, right. hey, you know, Alabama's kicked our butt on the recruiting trail, and that's why the offensive line struggled. It's not. It's not that at all. There's a look at how you build a roster, or the right way to build a roster, in comparison to some of the other teams that have won the SEC. But it's really, in my mind, it's more of a roster building article yeah. than it is a stars or recruiting article. Now, obviously, recruiting and stars matter, but. It, it has a lot more to do with how you should build an offensive line. And then to your point, right. Bill, at the end, you, you then come around to, hey, what does Billy Napier's past say about his ability to build an offensive line and what he's doing? And so, um, yeah, I think it's a positive, it's a positive end to a uh, challenging decade stretch for Florida at offensive line. But, you know, it's one of the things I said, I think, last week, Dave, is that, you know, the Georgia championship, if it's taught me anything, it's that you got to appreciate it when it comes because it doesn't come very often. And so, you know, the build and the 10 years and all of the, all the stuff since Tim Tebow left and since Urban Meyer left and all the different things we've had to learn about how these programs are built and how, um, how elite programs end up being elite for a long time. 
all of those things, once we finally get it, it's going to be a blast to be able to look at all these numbers and cite that, hey, hopefully Billy Napier is hitting all of these metrics that we've been talking about for the last five, six, seven years. And so everybody's going to be able to go along that ride with us as we're riding the tidal wave of the metrics as opposed to trying not to get crushed by the tidal wave <laughs> from the metrics. But, uh, you know, again, I, I just want to emphasize it's not just recruiting. There was there was a lot of the stuff in there about roster building, how to build an offensive line and how you do that the right way beyond just, hey, get the five stars. Well, to further yeah, that message. I did not want this to be a recruiting article. Yeah, I did, yeah, I didn't want to do that, and I and I know that that's kind of what I've been known for. And so what I did is I set out and said, it had to be said. It is part of it. It's a factor, but I saved that for kind of towards the end, and it's probably the smallest section in the entire article because I think we're just at the point now collectively as a as a fan base where I think most of us kind of know the deal. We we know that the recruiting needs to be better, and I did go into some numbers to explain the severity of the issue and what that looks like. Uh, but it's brief, and then we move right on to the good news. So, and that's you know, that's it. Yeah, we'll get into that, Bill. It was it, going to Will's message. There it was a message I kind of sent you earlier today. It was when Billy Napier's ho- ho- hoisting that national championship trophy in a few years, you'll know what he had to dig out of to get there. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, and that's that's kind of like what I told Donovan Steiner's mom used to message me. You know, and he was a three star, and she was kind of like at first a little bit offended that I'd post some stars based stuff. And I, I told her back then, I'm like, look, when people say the stars don't matter, they're, they're robbing you of the significance of when your son had that big interception. I think it was a big sack versus Mississippi yep. state. That's a bigger deal because the guy overcame the odds to get it done. And I celebrate not only these guys, individual performances, but Hey, let's not dumb this down. Napier's got a big task ahead of him. And if he gets this done and ascends the hill, uh, with Gator football, it's going to be that much sweeter because we know where he came from. All right, that's kind of what we'll get into the theme of the episode before we get there. Hit that like button, hit that subscribe button. Really helps us out here on Gators Breakdown. Check us out at news4jacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. Quick, quick housekeeping note before we go uh, in news. Paul Pascaloni taking the job with the Carolina Panthers. Uh, leaving his post as director of advanced scouting and self-scout for the Gators. Uh, moving on to the NFL there. So uh, we'll see how Billy Napier feels that role, if it's some guys, quality control guys that are already on staff that kind of just take that role uh, and uh, move forward with that, or if it would be a similar hire out there uh, to replace all that experience Pascaloni brought to the table. Uh, so we'll see uh, the next day. We get Billy Napier press conference on Friday, so I'm sure uh, this will be a topic uh, there. So let's take a look back. Last week, last Wednesday, National Signing Day. Bill, let's get your quick thoughts on on that before we move forward. And I like the way you said it, and I forgot where you said it. It may have been a conversation between us or in, in Gators Breakdown Plus. Um, everybody heard Will and I's thoughts last week. If you want to go back, look at uh, National Signing Day. Will and I uh, had a nice breakdown last week. But, Bill, you said when you grade this class, you're not grading nature. You're grading the class. Right. Napier came in with really impossible odds of, of taking that class to where it was going to be, even somewhat in terms of being a transition class. So many prospects in the state of Florida and in the bread and butter region in the southeast were already committed. And he wasn't lying when he said they were going to scour the country and, and turn over every rock to, to do these evaluations and look everywhere they could for those players. And, you know, he leaned a little bit on his home turf that he established in ULL uh, in Louisiana, in Texas, in that in that region and kind of had to backfill from there. I liked what he did uh, getting uh, Kamari Wilson and Jamar James on board, Devin Moore, some of these guys. But the class is, is terrible as far as a number standpoint. 
uh, th that's not a commentary on any individual in the class, but there's just not enough good players. I think, what are they, ninth in the SEC right now? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not going to cut it. It's right, yeah, 19th nationally, ninth in the SEC. It could go up a little bit if they kid, get the kid out of Oregon. Um, but it's it's not a good class by any stretch of the imagination. I think that when I looked at the roster today, uh, this according to composite rating for every player that's projected to be there in 2022, five of the bottom six are from this 2022 class. I think if anything, this this class is deepening the hole that Billy Napier has to dig out of, and and just because transition classes are that way. Um, but when you also put that next to the classes that Mullen put together in 2021 and the fact that 2019 is the, the fourth year seniors this year and that class has been decimated and already wasn't great rankings wise. Um, I don't like it. And, and that's, I don't mean to be a curmudgeon or anything, you know, but I think he's going to do a great job. I I'm very optimistic that 2023 is going to be a fun recruiting year. I do not think we're going to see the mess we saw with Dan Mullen. I have high hopes. I'm cautiously optimistic anyway. Um, but we just need to call it what it is. I mean, he's got to come out and get a top five group this year. And uh, even then, it's going to take some building after that. I don't, I don't even think that – I mean, it could be enough. That's the bare minimum historically. But uh, he's got a big job ahead of him. Will, let me get your thoughts right here. This is a hot topic last week. Other schools in transitions and the ones, you know, Florida has to deal with. LSU, because Florida plays them, they're in the conference. Florida plays Miami or not Miami – are some scheduled games versus Miami, but in-state recruiting rival uh, that you have to go by here. And I think we have to go back and look at when the when the class was built and you know how it was built. You know, Billy Napier decided to come in and in ways gut the class and put that hole there uh, just a bit deeper in, in recruiting this. We know the headliners there, Nick Evers, Jaden Gibson, uh, there those two headliners who probably, if Billy Napier wanted to keep those guys in the class, would have bolstered the numbers. The, the the ranking definitely would be higher with those two guys in the class. Comes into play a bit here, but Gators ranked 19th, as Bill said. Six of the 17 committed before Napier were hired. 65% of the class committed after Billy Napier was hired, as we said. He had a, well, I think it was a, rated around, what, 30th or so when he got the job, had the defections, dropped down close to 80th, and then built the class back up. 65% of the class committed after Billy Napier was hired. LSU had the 12th ranked class. 9 of 15 committed before Brian Kelly was hired. 40%, only 40% of the class committed after the hire. Miami come in, ranked 15th, half of the class. 7 of 14 committed before Crystal Ball hired, of course, 50% of the class afterwards. So that deals with, you know, everybody wanted to compare these transition classes between Florida, LSU, Miami. And Will, we can sit here and say, I think we're going to have to just go back and look or in the future, we'll have to go back and look and say, okay, was the decision right to go back and, and, and gut the class? You know, we'll have to kind of see what those players end up being at Oklahoma there with, with Evers and Gibson uh, and, you know, how that plays out. So this is where we kind of just take some time to basically see, you know, the, the, um, the, the way Billy Napier approached this class to ultimately see if it was the right decision. And, but there you go. I mean, that, that, that did play a part here in him having, in him having to build this class back up. Yeah, and it's sort of how he built it, right? So the the 19th ranking is a little bit misleading when you look at the overall player rating. It's 88.64 for Florida. You go to Miami, it's 91.68. You go to LSU, it's 91.41. So the optics actually from an overall ranking would look 
very good if they had gotten Harold Perkins to, to commit to Florida. Mm-hmm. You'd basically be looking at three teams that are all ranked around the same place. But I yeah. think when you look at overall talent profile for the, for the classes, LSU and Miami have more talent. Now, obviously, LSU had the benefit, like you've got there, nine of the 15 commit before Kelly's hired. Then he adds Perkins as sort of the crown jewel at the end. And, you know, the fact that there were still guys available and that Ed Orgeron, you know, did not harm the recruiting at LSU actively before he left. Same thing, I believe, with Manny Diaz at Miami, though there was a little bit more noise there. Uh, but those guys didn't actively harm the recruiting classes. And, you know, the, the way Florida ended the year obviously harmed the recruiting classes or the, the recruiting class that the Gators had put together. And then you get the transition. So, look, I, I don't grade anybody on any single player. I don't grade anybody on any single class, especially a transition class. You go back and look historically, you know, Urban Meyer had – Dan Mullen had a transition class very, very similar to Urban Myers, and it turns out they both got about the same amount of output out of both of those transition classes. The difference is, is that Urban Meyer got six all-SEC players in his bump class in 2006, and uh, Dan Mullen, I don't think he got any all-SEC players from his bump class in 2019. And so you, you combine those things, and that that's the story, right? The story was that second class. So like Bill said, I, I don't look at it and say, hey, this is great. Like You don't want to get beat anytime right i mean if we we end up 19th in the country at the end of a football season we look and say that's a disappointing season so i say the same thing when we look at recruiting you end up 19th in the country in recruiting at the end of the recruiting cycle that's a disappointing cycle at the same time i i don't think that i don't use that as a referendum on what napier can do but what i do do is i say okay that's a there are still open questions right so napier had an opportunity on national signing day to answer some really key questions and with the guys all deciding to go with citizen and with perkins and with matthews all deciding to go someplace else you know i don't hold that against him but it means he doesn't get those notches on his belt that say hey we're going to answer those questions about recruiting so all that means is that there are more questions going into 2023 and he's going to have to answer those but he was always going to have to answer those anyway because like you said bill it's it's you know i think it actually needs to be better than top 5 when you when you think about it and and i say that because if you look at the actual 22 22 class it's in tiers. So you got AM, Alabama, Georgia, and kind of Ohio State is like a tweener. But then you get down, you got Texas, Penn State, Notre Dame, Oklahoma, Michigan, and maybe you could include Clemson and North Carolina in there. And then you get down to the LSU in terms of points. And Florida's not that far away from that third tier when it comes to recruiting and overall points. So it's not necessarily that, you know, if they got fourth, I'd be disappointed. It's that they need to be in that first tier with AM, Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State in order to say this is successful and we're starting to gain on not just the Alabamas and AMs and Georgias of the world, but you get that level of talent and it should never be a question whether you're favored against Kentucky or Missouri or South Carolina or any of those games where we've dropped in recent years, especially in the third or fourth year of these coaches of these coaches' tenures. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that Florida's nine and twenty-four since two thousand ten versus Auburn, LSU, Georgia, and Alabama. And it's and I know there are other factors there, but they have become increasingly outgunned, whether it be a one position or another or the entire team. Um, and, and I agree with you that as far as putting together a championship run, you've got typically you need better than a top five class. It's, it's just interesting because for so long as I've kind of been diving into this data, the, the minimum, the absolute minimum threshold I could find in history was like, you've got to either have a top five class or a five-star quarterback. Nobody's ever won the SEC without it that I can find on record. 
Um, but we haven't ever really gotten around to saying what's the best way to do this because people are so stuck on, well, the portal, well, we'll do it like Clemson. Well, we, you know, Mullen doesn't need this or that or the other. And it turns out they do. And, and I, I agree with you that if, if you want to feel like, Hey, a championship is imminent, the number one to number three classes is, is the way you got to do that typically. And really preferably more than one of those. But if we, if we get to a point where, where Napier sneaks into the top five, then we're looking at it and say, you know what? Now we have hope that's based on history rather than hope that's just hope. Well, and I want to go back to what you said there because if you, the last team in the SEC to win without a top two class was Auburn in 2013. And then the last team before that was Auburn in 2010. And the last team before that was Georgia in 2005. And Georgia's the last team that won without a top five recruiting class in 2005. So we've now got a 16-year period here where we've got three teams that were outside of – that the four classes prior didn't have a top two class. And then only two situations where a team had top five classes and was able to get it done. And nobody outside of that since 2005. So, you know, the, the reality is, is that it's just a necessary component if you want to win the SEC. You know, now, you can make the Clemson arguments or the Ohio State arguments. Ohio State's a bad one. But you can make those sorts of arguments. But the reality is they don't play Georgia A&M and, and Alabama mm-hmm. every year. And, and so that makes a difference. So a team like Florida State can recruit at 20th and still have some hope, maybe. Um, but, uh, you know, you can't do that in the SEC and be successful. Yeah, I think it was the it was either the first four or five uh, appearances that Clemson had in their conference title game. They had faced one former five star recruit combined in like four or five games. You know, but uh, I actually, and, and, Auburn, and, Bill, and Bill, we've talked about this. And when building that, they only had to pass FSU. They didn't have yeah, to. They pass were three or four. Rocketed to second in the league in recruiting, and then as soon as. Taylor Jacobs visited Tallahassee. That was it, and they took over. You you faced that, that. You, you faced that many five stars. <laughs> didn't know Sorry, you were going to go there, but <laughs> you, you you faced more five star recruits in the first drive against Alabama than, than Clemson did in that run. In like six years, but no. And, and by the way, Auburn actually did not have a top five class. They had a number six as far as a composite. They had a number six and a number nine. What they did have was Cam Newton, who was like the first 10-star recruit. And again, if you've got a five-star quarterback, in, in 2005, Georgia, that you mentioned, also had one. Uh, they had DJ Shockley, who was the first-team All-SEC quarterback in the SEC championship game MVP in 2005. So, yeah, if you've got that, you can typically – not typically, atypically, you, every once in a while you can, you can bypass the recruiting class need of, for top five. And honestly, look at go back and look at those teams as well. Who did they go into that Clemson ACC argument? Who did those teams have to pass? When Georgia won in 05, Florida wasn't Florida. They were coming off of Ron Zook. No, I think and they were like the last year. First, yeah, first year. Two or three losses that year as a champion. Yeah. And then, you know, when Auburn was doing it, it was Bama, LSU, you know, but LSU wasn't Georgia level, what Georgia is now. Uh, no, yeah, but so they, they beat Alabama more, a couple of times. I mean, it's so, yes, I'm saying, but they only they only had to worry about Alabama at that time. There were no like it is right now. The SEC wasn't as deep at the top as it is right now. It is interesting. It's though. interesting. They, Chiswick, oh, go ahead. Chiswick, Chiswick won. They ran him off. Malzahn won. They run him off. And now Harson's going to get run off after <laughs> a year. That you know, we, we talk about dysfunction or support from an athletic department or something like that. But whoo boy, what about Napier's judgment not taking that Auburn job? Auburn's weird. Yeah. Too 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 many too many boosters want to uh, call the shots there. So 
Um, it's it's look, really weird that like the SEC West, man, you better behave yourself as a coach because there are people gunning for your job. Like Houston Nuts probably involved in this somehow, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you think still, about it like um, still you said. I mean, Malzahn got uh, run out of Arkansas by Nutt, and then Nutt took down Hugh Freeze at Ole Miss. And what was his name at Arkansas? The the neck brace guy. Petrino. Oh yeah. Petrino in Arkansas. I mean, it's just like it's crazy, yeah. man. All right, a so, couple so of games right down so can we get, no, So can we Go get ahead. Houston done on Saban? Like that, that sounds like <laughs> that, that needs to be our idea, plan. Sir. <laughs> <laughs> we could ask Houston that, hey, how do you uh, feel about accessing Nick Saban's hard drives? <laughs> do you have any dirt on Kirby Smart? Like, come on. Come on. Uh, a couple of uh, thoughts here from uh, Gators Breakdown Plus members on this topic before we move on to the rest of the episode here. Robert Guagliardo, he goes, personally, and I'm probably biased, I think it's the right choice. Transition classes, especially since early signing day, are largely a wash. So getting guys you know and are comfortable with is better than just taking the higher-ranked guy. Also think him bringing in transfers from Louisiana is a good move to help build the culture. And one more, District 352 uh, said in Gators Breakdown Plus Discord, said, of the kids Napier lost slash dropped, they ended up at Knowlton, 195-pound defensive end. He ended up at Syracuse. Gibbs, bad knee, ended up at Georgia Southern. Smith, bad knee, last-minute take for Georgia. EJ Lightsey, decent player at the linebacker, last-minute take for Georgia. Burt, never playing here, last-minute take for Oklahoma. Evers, uh, didn't buy in, uh, thought he'd backdoor a day-one job at Oklahoma. They've already recruited over him. Gibson, the only drop that I really questioned, also ended up at Oklahoma. So, there you go, looking back there. At uh, you know the 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 defections of this class, then building it back up to where Billy Napier did. All right, Bill, let's get into uh, this position. I'm going to start with the chart that you sent me uh, to share here, and there we go. Positional top ten prospects signed over four classes. The trends there. Ooh, I mean. Eye-opening when you see right there looking at that chart, the trend of recruiting, whether it be offense, defense, how they've switched, where Florida's defense now is recruited better, numbers-wise, say, more so than the offense, not even really close uh, at, at this point. Bill, why that's up there, uh, give our listeners and uh, uh, viewers here an explanation of what they see. Okay, what Dave's posted here is a chart that I came up with this week. And I went back and looked at every recruit Florida signed uh, since 2002. And then I only counted the ones who were ranked in the top 10 of their respective positions. So if you were the number seven cornerback, the number three tight end, whatever. And I tallied those totals up. Uh, I do have individual position statistics, but this is a sum total of the offense and the defense and the, the total team but done in a rolling four-year total. So it, that's why it starts in 2005, because that first year is the sum total of everybody they recruited of those top 10 positional rankings in 2002, 3, 4, and 5, because that's what's on the roster for the four-year roster-building cycle. And then so the next year, it's the next four years, if, if that makes sense. And what we see here is that uh, those top 10 positional recruit totals uh, – topped out in 2010, which is not surprising. There were 47 total on the roster. Uh, going into 2022, it looks like there's going to be 21. Now, I don't have Jalen Kimber on there. As a matter of fact, I think this is only high school recruits, and I know it is. Um, but, but still, the offensive total is what really stands out here after floating anywhere from 
12 to 17 between 2005 to 2012, it's gradually declined to where they've only signed three offensive recruits who once ranked in the top 10 of their positions in the last four recruiting classes. So they're not even averaging one per year in the last four years. And quite frankly, I just don't even understand how that's possible. Bill, looking at this, and I tweeted it, and we'll let you jump in here, but you know, just kind of – you said you had 2022 in here, uh, the, the most recent class. And you go back and look. I mean, this class was basically extending that thought of the defense over the offense. Shamar James comes in. He's Florida's seventh highest linebacker recruit ever. Since 24-7 sports all time, since 2002. Add that to a column in the defense there. Defensive back Tamari Wilson – Florida's ninth highest DB recruit, fourth highest safety overall there uh, for Kamari Wilson. But, Will, man, I mean, <laughs> just looking at this, the trend, how it switches from offense to defense, but just the the decline. I mean, it is stark when you look at this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually the trend maybe that's even more important than the overall number. So you look at it, Urban Meyer takes over in 2005, and for the next six years – the number of positional top 10 prospects who are being signed just skyrockets. And in the Will Muschamp era, it basically stays the same. And then Jim McElwain comes around and all of a sudden it starts to drop. And then Dan Mullen comes around and okay, it maybe increases a little bit, but kind of plateaus out. And so I think that sort of says something about not just the top 10 positional. I think this is sort of a leading indicator of the quality of the players down beneath as well, right? So you look at it and say the 2006 team for Florida probably wasn't really ready to win the championship, even though they got the job done. But by the time you get to 2008, not only is that number up to 38, which is you know, like one, you know, the third highest amount that Florida's ever had back there, or at least over the last 15 or 17 years, but it's heading in the right direction, and it says something about the underlying guys. Because you know, I'm looking right now, Chris McClellan, the defensive line commit um, you know, from, from Oklahoma, he's ranked 113th nationally, but he's 16th at his position. So what you're really saying, at least at defensive tackle, when you bring in a, uh, when you bring in a top 10 guy, you're bringing in somebody who's like in the top 80 overall nationally and so you know mcclellan's a really good player but he doesn't end up in this tally and so a lot of this i think is i bet if you go and look underneath that 38 number in 2008 is a whole host of guys who are highly ranked recruits highly talented recruits who don't who don't necessarily hit that top 10 but those are probably trending in that same direction and i suspect if you look over in both the McElwain and the mullen eras that they're either level or declining in those two eras and so not only is your roster on the top end struggling in order to build but it's also struggling beneath there um, or at least just maintaining beneath there and obviously maintaining with with kirby smart recruiting the way he is means that george has been able to race right by florida Man, this is ugly. <laughs> well, here we go. This trends. Uh, this transitions into. There's our look right now. If you look at recruiting rating by position of the current Gator roster, I used a depth chart that uh, Thomas Goldcamp puts out there uh, to to come up with this. They are ranked by position, highest to lowest. So, Bill, if you look at this, Will, if you look at this. Linebacker, probably not a surprise. Maybe surprised by how they how how they've played <laughs> out there, but the way they've recruited, we've seen that over the last few years. Linebacker is the highest rated position, going back to recruiting rankings on this Gator roster. So this is a lot of you know based on potential uh, here, but a rating of ninety two point five 
there for a linebacker. Running back, a room built by transfers, is the second highest position group rated. Cornerback, not a surprise there. Wide receiver, the 91.2. Safety, 90.6. Defensive line rushed in. I did combine those there. And then the last three, all on the offensive side of the ball. Quarterback, tight end, offensive line, which we'll get to. And this really just solidifies, Bill, what you have put out there this week. But last but to you guys, anything catch your eye right here? I mean, to, to me, up top, running back being second behind running uh, behind linebacker. As I said, in this position, that is so built through the transfer portal right now. Man, where where do we begin? Um, th- the first thing that I think people need to understand, there, this idea that offensive line are the hardest to evaluate and that it should naturally correlate to lower ratings on your team but still maintain success, I don't buy it. Uh, and the reason I don't buy it is because I've seen some data. I don't have complete certainty in this yet. But uh, when I was looking through the all-SEC data, uh, and I'm probably going to go back and finish this from the recruiting aspect, Offensive line is really middle of the pack when it comes to you know, the positions where cor- the ratings correlate to all SE success. Uh, but tight end is probably where it should be. It's the lowest correlation between stars and AP and uh, all SEC success. Um, but the problem is that offensive line issue is so pronounced on the UF roster right now uh, that when you rank all of the 88 88- players that I show that are currently projected on the roster. And of course they will get below 85. Uh, There's only one offensive line ranked among the top 35 as far as rate former rating. As a matter of fact, of the 18 offensive line expected to be on the roster, 13 of those are ranked 62 or worse of that 88. Six of the bottom nine are offensive linemen. It's just glaring. The worst players, not worst players, forgive me. The worst formerly rated players sit at the bottom of the list on the Gator roster and that's just – that's staggering. I, I, I'll be honest. The thing that jumps out to me is that Alabama has an average class ranking of 95.2. Cut the commercial. <laughs> <laughs> so they're three points above Florida's best position ranking, which, which says something about, about the discrepancy in the talent between two of them. The other thing I would say is that and, – and, Bill, I'm glad you talked about when you were talking about your article, sort of going in with a hypothesis and then saying, okay, what did I learn? So I'm working on something right now um, that goes and looks back to teams all the way back to like 1988. And it, you and the reason I'm looking back that far is I think there's been a fundamental shift in terms of the way offensive football is being played. And it used to be, in fact, I wrote an article maybe three or four years ago that sort of looked at offensive line recruiting versus um, offensive efficiency. And there wasn't a huge correlation, at least in the small subset that I looked at. But I think that's changed. And I think it's changed for a few reasons. One is I think that teams like um, – Teams like Alabama and Georgia, Georgia less so, but teams like Alabama and Ohio State have sort of embraced the spread option, the RPOs, those sorts of things. And they've also embraced having an elite running quarterback back there, or at least a dual threat quarterback back there, who can really do some damage both with his legs, but also especially through quick decision-making RPOs. And you really need more athletic offensive linemen to be able to pull off those sorts of offenses. And so I think there's a fundamental shift that suggests that you know, it might have been that if you had really, you know, 10 years ago, if you had really talented defensive linemen, that you could get away with, you know, 
with less physically gifted offensive linemen and just have road graders and have a rushing offense or something like that. I don't know that's true anymore. And I think, I think there's some evidence mounting specifically about the way quarterbacks are playing, the way offenses have shifted. The RPO shift is really significant when it comes to how you recruit and what kind of physical gifts you need from the people on the field. I would like to see more of that, Will. And, and quite frankly, a lot of people would, would point to the whole Alabama as an outlier thing, but the teams that are winning championships these days uh, with their offensive linemen are superstar recruits and athletes. They're not the big lumbering behemoths that we've seen. I mean, they might be huge, but these guys can move their feet. You know, they can get out in the zone games. They can get out on the perimeter. and They're just as devastating on the move as they are right at the point of attack. And I so mean, all, I, I think that makes sense. I mean, all you have to do is look at efficiency. So, like, if you look at yards per play, Ohio State was number one this year. Georgia was number four. Oklahoma was number six. Cincinnati's number eight. So teams that were really, really successful. If you go back 10 years, 2011 to 2012, you got Houston, Baylor, Oklahoma State, Oregon's up there, Stanford, Wisconsin, and Northern Illinois are the top seven in FBS in terms of efficiency from a yards per place perspective. If you shift that and look at the defense, it's completely just ruled by the blue chip, by the by the recruiting mavens back in 2011, 2012. You go back and look 10 years from now, the efficiency ratings on the defensive side of the ball are owned by the Clemsons and the Ohio States and the Georgias. Um, and nowadays, they have found that that was a place where they could find an advantage. And, you know, Saban for years sort of said, hey, I'm going to run the ball. I'm going to have ball control. I'm going to have guys like Mark Ingram win the Heisman. And, you know, I'm going to have a defense that nobody can beat. Then he came up against Johnny Manziel and said, hmm, like, it'd be nice to have one, <laughs> have one, that kind of offense on my side of the ball. And you end up with the Tua versus Burrow game in 2019, where it's just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth the entire time. And now Alabama can win games like that. There's just been a shift in terms of how things have gone. And Saban's sort of a bellwether for that um, because he's got the best teams out there. But if you just look at efficiency numbers from a decade ago, they're on offense. They're completely different teams up at the top. And it's now the blue chip elite recruiters who are up at the top again, and they figured out a way to do that. So what that means is, is that there's going to be likely another shift in terms of what happens, right? You think about guys like uh, Rich Rodriguez at West Virginia, who decided he was going to basically have Pat, uh, Pat white run his, his read option offense. And that was the edge that he had. Well, everybody else adopted that read option offense, and all of a sudden, <laughs> Rich Rodriguez can't win anywhere when he goes to Michigan because it turns out that the offense was useful because he was doing something that no one else was doing. And so who's going to be that innovator? Who's going to differentiate? Or just who's going to get the best players? And hopefully Napier does both, right? You know, here, here's a stat to kind of uh, piggyback on, on the back of that. And I just found this as you were talking. Uh, I wanted to kind of – See, like, what do my numbers show that supports this? And in the last seven years, SEC champion offensive lines had averaged a positional recruit ranking in the top 10 five times. Averaged. Like, like it's not just they had a couple of studs and mixed in. I mean, heck, in 2018, Alabama's average national ranking for their offensive line starters was 36th. The average player on their offensive line. I mean, Florida's having a hard time getting top 500 offensive line. We'll get into that because I, I, <laughs> I got those uh, those charts you put in the article. But what, what, one more before we hit even more on the offensive line and, and the struggles there. Will mentioned when we when I when I sent this graphic to, he was like, "Okay, well, how are we so bad at linebackers?" Well, Ooh. a lot of this 
and, 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 and it's true. The numbers boosted by the, some of the younger linebackers who have barely been on the field and Shamar James, who's yet to play a snap for Florida. I mean, Ventro Miller is going to be a starter, and he's the lowest-rated linebacker right. that's in yeah. this group. And so then you get Shamar James, which is the highest at 97. He was rated 97-16. Derek Wingo, who didn't even play linebacker in high school, just started getting on the field toward the end of last year a good bit. And then Scooby Williams was 96.7 or 96.8. But that's your three highest linebackers right there. We've yet to see anything from two of them. Wingo, toward the end of last year, like I said, Miller's going to be starting. The one black, all the potential in the world, have yet to see him play a snap at linebacker too much, really, too much for the Gators as well. So this really for linebacker, there's nothing concrete to put on this. It's a high number based on recruiting ranking, a lot of potential here. But as I said, Ventro Miller, as long as he's healthy, he's the lowest rated and he's going to be the starter. I'm glad you brought this up, um, Dave, because earlier today – I wanted to look at how things had declined from those top 10 positional ranking perspectives at different positions. And when I subdivided and said, okay, let's look at 2002 to 2010, because that was kind of the golden age of Florida recruiting. And then let's compare that to what they did afterwards as a frequency. Well, linebacker had the second biggest drop off of any position outside of wide receiver, uh, which we'll talk about wide receiver in a minute, but, at linebacker from 2002 for those nine classes to 2010, they signed 14 top 10 linebackers. So they averaged 1.6 a year. But since then, in the 12 years from 2010 to 2022, or excuse me, 2011 to 2022, it fell off to only 38% of the output, 0.6 per year. And there was a total of seven. But they got three of those seven, almost half of them in 2019, like you mentioned. And that included the Abate who's gone. Uh, that in, included uh, Dewan Black. And it included, Josiah, not Josiah Pierre, I'm sorry. Who was the other one? Um, Tyron Hopper. So yeah. they got two that are gone and one that's done nothing. It's, it's a staggering drop-off despite what the numbers show in the chart. Yeah. And Bernie's not even included in this. Thomas, you know, it was not given that he was going to be part of this team. He just got put on the roster, uh, you know, the, that – Florida officially put out, you know, the spring roster already. Uh, so, of course, you know, he's, he's not added in this. But um, the, the, the average would not change. Plus, you're talking to somebody who didn't even really play linebacker in high school <laughs> when you would you add him to this anyway. So, um, but one more story. thing. Go, go ahead, Will. Go ahead. I was going to say it's the same story at running back, right? I mean, you, you sit there and look at it and go the 92.18. Yeah. But DeMarcus Bowman and Lorenzo Lingard are the reason that that's so high. And you got a guy just impressing everybody and every single scout out there at the at the Senior Bowl. You know, and Damian Pierce, who was getting, what, six or seven carries a game. And so, you know, I – I hesitate to say these guys don't have experience, so they can't get on the field because it seems like some of the guys who couldn't get on the field, it's not necessarily a talent thing. Certainly with Pierce, it wasn't an attitude thing, right? I mean, so, you know, I, I don't I don't know what to make of it other than seniority mattered, and that's a dumb way to run things. But even but it didn't even matter with him. He didn't get enough carries. He was with other <laughs> seniors, I guess. I don't know, man. I got no I got no 
Like you could look at it throughout the year in terms of efficiency numbers that Damian Pierce was the best running back just in terms of how, how he was doing when based and, and based on the offensive line struggling at times. And it was almost like they had this idea that Malik Davis played really, really well against Alabama and said, well, we'll we need to recapture that because he's got more explosion capabilities or things like that. And maybe that was it, right? As they were trying to capture explosive plays because they couldn't get them from Emory Jones. And so they were like, we're going to have to get them from somewhere else. And Malik Davis has more propensity for that sort of thing but it's a scathing indictment when a guy goes to the senior bowl i mean when a guy is consistently better from an analytics perspective and then he goes to the senior bowl and every single scout who's there goes whoa why, why haven't we seen this guy carry the rock 25 times a game <laughs> but, but it's for dan mullen <laughs> <laughs> but it, I, I guess my point <laughs> is it's, it's, fan out there is welcome to the club <laughs> right <laughs> but but it's the same story Hello, right you're talking about the linebackers and you're sitting there going, well, these guys who are highly ranked didn't play. And then you look at the running backs, you go, well, these guys who are highly ranked didn't play. Finally, you get to the corners and I'm not sure Jason Marshall would have played if Jadon, if Jadon Hill hadn't injured himself. And I mean, obviously I don't want anybody to get injured, but yeah. you know, I'm not sure that, that Marshall would have gotten near the playing time that he did without, without the, without him, without Hill going down and you know, wide receiver is a little bit of a different story with everybody leaving, but uh, you know, I don't know. I, I have zero to add here because we basically, I mean, I would be interested to know, and I don't, I don't, I suspect none of us have the numbers, but I'd be interested to know what the starters recruiting ratings were last year compared mm -hmm. to the roster. I would bet the starters ratings were always below the overall <laughs> roster rating. <laughs> I need a drink. <laughs> hey, one more, but I hate to even pile on. I have to mention this because it's irrelevant. Because you, I was just where we're going to go next. You, we're just the wide receiver discussion. Oh, you and I have yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry in advance. But listen, <laughs> <laughs> after signing 10 wide receivers that were in their ranked as top 10 at their position in the nine years from 2002 to 2010, UF has only signed two. Two dose if you were in a Spanish-speaking country in the 12 years since. They haven't signed one in six consecutive recruiting classes. That dates back to 2016 when they landed Tyree Cleveland, who was the number three wide receiver in the country that year. Six years, guys. At the, at the program that produced Willie Jackson, Quezzy Green, Ike Hilliard, Percy Harvin, Andre Caldwell, I, I, I don't understand this. And Bill, Justin, um, the the players that you and I looked up that we thought could have been close, I think all graded out at like the at, they were rated the twelfth best wide receiver in the class. It was Copeland, Henderson, uh, those guys were around that range. So yeah, not a top ten wide receiver since Tyree Cleveland. Right, it's it's bad, and I mean they've had some some good ones. But that's yeah. the whole point, isn't it? It's a, it, that's the difference between good and great a lot of times. Statistically, you're going to have your occasional guy that jumps up there that comes out of nowhere and he's ranked in the thousands and he puts up 3,000 yards. Where you're, I, you know what I mean? It happens. But, you know, people survive gunshot wounds to the head too. And we don't say they don't matter. <laughs> you know, it just – oh. It, it, it's also interesting because out of all the positions that I think you would say stars matter, when you start looking at the different 
when you start looking at wide receiver, like you go back and look at 2018, you had Justin Shorter, who's the number one wide receiver, goes to Penn State. But then you've got Amon, Ray, Amon Ross St. Brown, who's already in the pros. You got Terrace Marshall, Darian Kendrick at Clemson. You got Jalen Waddell at Alabama. Like that's the top five there for the, for the, for the 2018 class. Um, you know, and you see the same thing. You got George Pickens, you got uh, Garrett Wilson out there at Ohio State. So, like, they're in, in the 2019 class. So, I, my suspicions are is that it's easy or easier to see the guys who are special at wide receiver. And so, you know, Florida's been supplying Alabama's wide receivers for years now. And when we see what's happened with those offenses there in Tuscaloosa. So, yeah, I mean, that's something that beyond just the the top 10 wide receivers and all that sort of stuff, they're, they're struggling from a numbers perspective, too. I mean, they've only got eight on the roster adding Caleb Douglas there. So I suspect the spring portal season is going to be tied specifically to trying to bring in wide receivers. Right, so we'll get into the, to the offensive line talk. You see it there on the very bottom, the lowest rated position group for the Gators. And, and the, the takeaway here at the top, as we said, based on potential of guys who haven't played, you see the potential there. There's a lot of potential at linebacker, a lot of potential at running back. Now we just got to see those guys get on the field, see those five stars, those high, highly rated four stars get on the field uh, and start producing uh, for the Gators. But before we get to this offensive line and wrap up the episode, your team might have missed a big game this year, but MyBookie's double deposit bonus. Make sure you won't sign up at MyBookie now. Use promo code Gators to have your first deposit matched instantly so you can get in on all the action of Super Bowl 56. The only way watching the biggest game of the year could get any better is to get paid doing it and my bookie gives you everything you need to do it. With double your money, you can double your winnings, and the best starting point for the big game is the Super Bowl prop bets. Whether it's on the field or off the field, there's no shortage of wagers to choose from for the Super Bowl. So get in on the action. Let the confetti fall. Walk away a winner. Don't miss out. Head to my bookie. Double your first deposit up to $1,000 by using promo code GATORS. Place your bets. Get ready for the unmatched excitement of the Super Bowl. Bet anything, anytime. Anywhere with my bookie, Bill. This was uh, this one here. This chart in the article comparing all these classes, all these teams: Alabama, Auburn, Georgia, LSU, Florida. There's your SEC competition. And so, you know, how did we get here? This is where we're at right now. And Bill, the quote in your article. By the end of the 2019, by the end of 2019, two of Mullen's four offensive line signees from the 2018 class, Chris Bryce, Noah Bank, Noah Banks, had already exited from the program. In the months that followed, that two members of the 2019 class failed to qualify for admission: Diave Hammond, Wardrick Wilson. Then two more class of 2020 signees decided to transfer: Isaiah Wilson, Gerald Mincy. So there's your comparison chart. We'll come back to that, but. There's a list right there. All the attrition from the Gators since 2010. That's just the offensive line. That's not the whole team. <laughs> that's not just one side of the ball. It almost could be a whole team. <laughs> yeah, not just one side of the ball. That is the offensive line. Everybody who has left since 2010. Walk us that way a little bit, Bill. Well... <laughs> This thing all started because in 2010, Urban Meyer had a twinge in his esophagus and signed two offensive linemen in the 2010 class. It was the number one overall class in the country. 
except for had two offensive line. And that wouldn't have been a huge deal, but then Muschamp came in. And then for two more consecutive uh, classes, only signed two offensive linemen in each of those. So this all started because they, over three years, only added six offensive linemen to the roster. But then three of those left. And as he tried to counter this with these wildly big classes, everybody kept leaving. And, you know, it gets a hair better on the attrition under McIlwain, but then he starts signing small classes after his first year uh, when he should have been building up. And then just as we thought things were going to settle, the attrition started again under, under Mullen. And so basically what you had is a situation where you didn't add enough people, you didn't retain enough people, and then kind of as we've talked about, the ones you did have weren't good enough on a high enough frequency. They did find an occasional gym. I mean, Jawan Taylor was a really nice uh, uh, player who was a very low-rated one. But at the end result, as you started transfers at right tackle in five of the last nine years, you started multiple mediocre transfers on the line this year. And, you know, I, I'm not one to point uh, the finger at them because they're doing the best they can, getting an education, playing for Florida, and being stand-up guys. But – it's just not good enough. And, and I know that they had their moments where they looked okay or that people were like, oh, they look pretty good against Alabama. But it just, by and large, the offensive line play has remained a liability that Mullen has schemed around, sometimes very effectively so. They were helped out by Kyle Trask's awareness and feet, uh, but they have not been a championship offensive line. They haven't produced a first-team AP All-SEC player in a long, long time. Long time. And it's just a problem that – that uh, Napier's going to have to overcome if he's going to win a championship. Well, this isn't even the chart that – I mean, it's it's mine – it's sort of striking to see all the names, but this isn't the chart that got me, Dave. It's the one where he chose the percent attrition rate of Florida compared to all these other programs. There ah, you, go. you got it. <laughs> so so <laughs> Soderquist is over there asking the us to take the other side of me that, uh, that comes out. So there you go. The news background comes into play. Oh, man, because this one just kills me. I mean, because yes. you sit there and you look at that list and you go, well, every program has this pro- has these problems, right? And the reality is, no, every program does not they have don't. these problems. And, and Will, so- before you go, I'm gonna, for, just for our listeners out there, they don't watch uh, here on YouTube. So Alabama, offensive line signed since 2010. In this w- window that Bill put out there since 2010, 51 offensive lines signed by Alabama Early departures, this is non-NFL, 11, 22% attrition rate. Auburn, they sit at 23% uh, attrition rate. Georgia, 50 offensive line signed since 2010. Only seven have left that program, a 14% attrition rate. LSU, they've signed 46 in that span. Early departures, 11. will go to Florida. Offensive line since signed since 2010. Florida has signed 46. 20 Early departures, 43% percentage of attrition rate, 20% higher than Auburn. Well, yeah, and then LSU was at 24%. So basically 20% higher than the next closest SEC team. I mean, it's, it's staggering. Go ahead, Will. Yeah, but this is why I this is why I say that the article is about roster building because if you look at it, Bill did a great job of looking at the UF offensive line class size from 2010 to 2021, and 19 of those 46 guys were signed in three different years, and so 
there were years he mentioned 2010 through 2012 where they only had six guys total but then 2016 they had three 2017 they had two 2021 they had three so you've got these years and we see this with quarterbacks right that if you bring two quarterbacks in in the same class one of those guys is going to transfer so in the portal it's only more it's only more likely for this to happen right these guys to leave would have needed to sit out a year in, in many of these years when they when they if they decide to leave but there's medical issues with some of them as well and all that sort of stuff but so I guess the point is is that the number the pure number of offensive linemen signed since 2010 for Florida is not all that different from Alabama Auburn Georgia and LSU the issue to me or there's two issues one is the attrition rate in general which is double the attrition rate or even triple almost quadruple when you compare to Georgia. So that's obviously bad. But beyond that, it's that it's so varied in terms of the number of people that they brought in on a year-to-year basis. It meant that if you had this large attrition in a gap where you either had guys who were really, really young or when you had a gap where you hadn't brought in a lot of guys in, in recent history, then what it meant was you were scrambling. And so a lot of that scrambling came down to the transfer portal the last few years. And some of the scrambling came to just not being able to host a spring game because you didn't have any scholarship offensive linemen when you needed to do that sort of stuff. And so, again, I, I, like, yes, recruiting is big. We've hit on that. That matters. But I think you could build a solid program just by managing the number of off- – based on what Bill wrote, I think you can build a solid offensive line and a solid program with guys with the star ratings that are brought in. But you would need to build the roster differently in terms of the years that you bring them in, how you develop them, and then obviously um, not taking chances on people who might not be able to medically qualify because, you know, you go down this list you got here. I'm looking one, two, three, four, five, six, six medical guys on there out of the 20 who, who didn't make it. And so that indicates either poor process and evaluating or, you know, poor strength and conditioning, I would, I would guess. Yeah, and, and I know that people are, people are quick to say, well, you can't help when somebody gets hurt. Uh, but half of those, those pre, were pre-existing medical conditions. I, I went back and researched this. And, in, you know, Noah Banks' case, you know, God bless him, and I'm, I'm wishing the best on that. But he mentioned in his retirement article, he's like, yeah, as you know, I've been having this medical issue for several years now. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, you know, and I understand that you don't want to discriminate and not give a kid a chance you know, just because they've got some condition or whatever. Um, but Florida was in a bad way numbers-wise. And if you were hurting for for bodies at the position, you can't take chances like that, not on a regular basis. It was the same thing with Kelleher and, and one of the other guys, and it just can't happen. Um, there was just a lot of high-risk behavior going on with the mis- and with this mismanaging style uh, of the offensive line Um the way they approached it, and it just got to stop. And I think it will, but we'll get into that. Which, and, you know, we said, you know, it's not all about recruiting, but look what Billy Napier's walking into. It would be nice to have, and look at the recent ones. It would be nice to have four-star Diave Hammond, four-star Wardrick Wilson, four-star Isaiah Walker. Right. Those 2019 and 2020, those guys would be on the offensive line right now. You'd have Richard Garage and – you know, Ethan White, maybe still even Osiris Torrance. So we may not even be here if these offensive linemen were here. You know, <laughs> Mullen still might be around. But you know, just for the sake of the argument, you, you could have those guys in with Richard Garage and Ethan White and Josh Braun uh, if it would have played out that way. You know, we're not even discussing really this whole topic, even if those 2019, 2020 guys are still in the class, they're still on the team. 
Yeah, and that's, and I didn't think Billy Napier's walking, and that's the mess Billy Napier's walking into. It, it is. It is. And the fact and that Havasi was in charge. And credit to him. Right? And Bill, yeah, you and I said it. Credit to him. Osiris Torrance coming in. Sure. You know, absolutely had to have that. And then, you know, early inclinations of, 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 the, of the recruiting class, you know, he's, he, he noticed it. Through the transfer portal and through recruiting, he brought in numbers along the offensive line. He did. That was one of the things I went back through in the article. Is I, I checked Billy Napier's track record as far as uh, class size consistency, as far as um, recruiting level, and as far as um, his retention. And it was better across the board. I mean, he, he hands down. I mean, it's to the point that I would say that his offensive line group at, at ULL was not only better managed, but better. And I don't mean better for a Sunbelt school. I mean better period than Florida's. They produce more if they, well they're going to have more NFL draft picks once Max Mitchell is drafted. I think they had eleven All Conference performers. Their metrics, uh, Pro Football Focus, were through the roof. Uh, where Florida's have been okay. A lot of that scheme wise, uh, even had a few good uh, rankings. But I mean, if you tell me to take one line or the other in the last four years, I'm taking Billy Napier from ULL. We'll go into our point there. David Connor, Jalen Farmer. Osiris Torrance, Cameron Waits, those are the two transfers. Christian Williams. I mean, look, we, we sit here and discuss. We were, you know, so yeah, it's not all about recruiting. Are those guys highly ranked? No, but at least we're seeing the numbers. At least we're seeing the numbers uh, get, getting here and at least maybe lay the groundwork for turning around this offensive line. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, again, it comes back to approach, right? That, that there is a, there seems to be a way to build the offensive line and recruiting six of them over a three-year period is not it. <laughs> and so, um, you know, Will Muschamp came in talking about it being a line of, a line of scrimmage league, but then didn't back that up with what he, with the players he was bringing in, you know, Billy Napier comes in and says, look, I've got to put together a class relatively quickly. I know I have to, I have to beep up the offensive line and takes guys like David Connor, Christian Williams, and Jalen farmer farmer, I think is ranked in the 600 somewhere. And he's the highest ranked offensive lineman that they brought in. So there are numbers in this class, but not necessarily, definitely not top 10 players at their position in this class. Now you look at a guy like Cameron Waits, who played a lot of basketball and is extraordinarily athletic. You know, I just mentioned earlier that athletic ability at the position is important, but obviously, you know, the basketball and good for him. And good for him, got a really, really high transfer rating. <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure how that happened, but uh, you know, we'll take it. And then, I, and then I go to Osiris Torrance, who's a real NFL prospect, right? I mean, that's a guy who, if he'd gone to Alabama, would have started at Alabama most likely or would have had an opportunity to start at Alabama at least. Um, All those big schools wanted me. Absolutely. So, you know, but it takes more than one offensive lineman to protect a quarterback and, and uh, to build holes. And so I think, you know, we're looking at – just as we did, and this is the thing, right? Is you go back to that first chart you showed, where it looks at the number of top ten players that uh, that Florida has, or top ten position players that Florida has. Um, I'm mean, I'm an overall for the roster, and oh, yeah. Ur- Urban Meyer's start in 2005 was not that much lower than where Billy Napier's starting now. The difference is, is that. Or at least the thing that you saw is that 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, all those years, the number of top 10 players at their positions built under Urban Meyer. So that's the thing. I think, you know, you look at the transition class, you look at the offensive linemen, you look at all that stuff. What you want to see is these things trending in the right directions, right? So if two years from now they've got four guys 
over the next couple of classes who are top 10 at their position in the offensive line, I think you'd be really confident that Billy Napier is starting to address that issue, especially if he's bringing in, you know, three, four, five guys at that position every year to make sure that there's some positional balance or some roster balance when it comes to that. Obviously, though, if that doesn't happen, we have some benchmarks that Bill's put together here for us to look back and say, you need to make a change here. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that we do this is that there's historical data that says this is how you build a program. And I think this lays a really nice framework for what you need to do to build an offensive line, especially in the SEC. I agree. However, I would sidebar and you guys know how much value I put on this data. But if uh, Torrance goes to the NFL, the fact when we look back and see that Napier put four of his ULL lineman in the league, that's freaking impressive. So I, that's I'm really impressed by that. Now he's going to have he can't count on you know recruiting at that level and continuously doing that. I think that's lightning in a bottle, um, but it's certainly got to get better. And one of the things I, I mentioned in the article too is that when you see this this chart here and it says that Florida only added uh, eight of those top ten offensive linemen to the roster since 2010, well, four of those, half of them came in the first three classes of that period. It's virtually disappeared, and they've been replaced increasingly by uh, prospects ranked outside the national top 500 in offensive line. It's just really gone off a cliff. And, uh, you know, I compared them in the article to their production at UF during that period, and they got Florida got three times as much production out of those top 10 offensive linemen, both in a um, – full-time starter capacity and the number of games started over a career. So, you know, hopefully Napier is going to make inroads very quickly, not just in the numbers like we're seeing, not just in retention, but he's going to really carve out a niche amongst these, these upper echelon offensive linemen. And there's plenty of them around the Southeast, even with the Alabama getting theirs, even with Georgia getting theirs, kind of like he said, they just have to get their share. Yeah. But it's got to change like right now in the next few months. And I'm, I'm hoping we start to see them show up by the end of summer. And there we go. I just put up there a graphic if you're watching live on YouTube here. Uh, if not, but we'll explain it right here. This is the offensive lineman in the state of Florida. 2023 coming up, but we know Florida has to get better in the state of Florida. Well, here's some offensive linemen for you uh, to, to go by. Just the, And we'll be doing this. We'll be talking 2023 recruiting coming up. But offensive line, pretty much a big subject. Florida has to get better there. And here you go. Look at in-state right here. Uh, I'm not sure how to say his name, so I got to make sure we <laughs> just, so just uh, bear with me there. Francis Magala? I don't know. I'm just a pure guess out there. West Coast Samoan uh, there. Five-star offensive tackle from IMG. Sixth-ranked player in the country. Number two at his position. Number two in the state of Florida. He does have West Coast ties. Maybe tough pull there. Going, you know, to IMG, we know how that works. Uh, but he does have some West Coast ties there. But you know, starting there, the most likely that Florida can go after target, hopefully getting a full Peyton Kirkland four-star offensive tackle from Orlando, two hundred overall in the country, fifteen at the position uh, at offensive tackle, 39th ranked player in the state of Florida. Clay Whedon, four-star interior offensive lineman from Tampa. He's two thirty-five overall, twelfth at his position, forty-first overall in the state of Florida. Lucas Simmons, four-star offensive tackle from Clearwater, 273-ranked player, 273rd-ranked player in the country. Najee Harris, four-star interior offensive line from IMG, 298th. And the top 300 right there, one, two, three, four, five, five top 300 overall players. Those are offensive linemen just in the state of Florida. 
Roderick Kearney, Orange Park, right down the road. Four-star off interior offensive lineman, 307. So another basically top 300 player out there. Tommy Kinsler, three-star offensive tackle from Ocala, 529 overall. DeAndre. And yeah, and I, and look, I hope we're not being joked, you know, right there. Uh, DeAndre Dufus, I mean, that's the way it was. I was hoping the <laughs> last name uh, there. But three-star offensive tackle from Hollywood, 578-ranked player in the country. So there's your state of Florida look. At, at, at offensive linemen. And one reason I bring that up, you know, offensive linemen, a lot of people say, oh, you, the state of Florida, not really known for offensive line talent. Bill, Will, I had to go and look. Florida's all-time offensive line recruits. Those are top 10. Martez Ivy, Apopka. Florida, not, not only should Florida hit – the state of Florida. Florida needs to hit the state of North Carolina too, because you stay here and look at the top five overall offensive linemen that they have signed. Three of them from the state of North Carolina. But Martez Ivy, the top-ranked offensive line player that Florida has ever signed, is second overall. DJ Humphreys was third overall in the country. James Wilson at third comes from Ponte Vedra. Xavier Nixon from Fayetteville, North Carolina. He was the 21st player overall. Carl Johnson. Fifth rate is highest offensive lineman for Florida. He was 21st ranked overall. So there you, you know, go look just kind of if you want to kind of compare where what Florida should do in the state of Florida. We've got to start with that 2023 class. If they land Clay Whedon, who's just 235 nationally there, that's on your chart. I mean, he'd be the uh, goodness. I don't think they've had um, a lineman stick on the roster ranked that high since Richard Garage. And that was the 2018. Other, the other thing is, you, if you're Billy Napier, you really want to you you want to draw a circle around Gainesville and extend that out as far as you can, right? So, Ocala, Orlando, Tampa, you really yeah. want your circle. There's, it's not like there's four guys from Miami who are sitting here on this list where you go, okay, Cristobal has a major advantage. And then, how far does it does that circle extend? Can you get it to extend into South Georgia? Can you get it to extend even up to up to Atlanta? Because if you can get it to extend up to Atlanta, you got Bo Hughley, who's 53rd overall. He's a Georgia commit, but still, you know, that's that's an offensive tackle that you might go after. He's relatively close. Madden Sanker, who's 82nd overall from Douglasville, Georgia. Um, you know, you've got Monroe Freeling from Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, who's 93rd mm-hmm. overall. So, that, so there's and some opportunities. Yeah, and even as I showed, go to the state of North Carolina. Three of the top five you've ever signed from North Carolina. Yeah. So I guess my point is, is that the state of Florida has some really good players here too. But if you're thinking about the way you would sort of strategize when you're doing this, all of the like driving to Atlanta is no different than driving down to Fort Myers, right? So from Gainesville, it's close. And so you know what's what's the like if you're drive if you're building a circle around Gainesville, that that circle needs to go into Georgia. And there are some opportunities there at offensive line as well to bring in some highly ranked guys who, you know, would be in the Kirkland or better um, class when it comes to when it comes to how they're rated, at least right now. Well, you know, you've had SEC champions feature Florida offensive linemen on their starting lineups in four out of the last five years. I think Georgia had I know Solomon Kenley, they plucked him out of Jacksonville, you know, and so that's when I see this chart and I see, you know, Roderick Kearney down in Orange Park. Florida's got to start locking down the Duval and Clay County in Northeast Florida. They, they've let Miami come in and establish a foothold up here. They've, they've let talent escape out of Trinity Christian High School. And I'm hoping that Cheston Blackshear, who's one of the staffers I discussed in the article, he was just added as a, a secondary staffer for the offensive line. 
he grew up on the west side of Jacksonville. I actually played high school ball with him, and I'm hoping that he can come in and and create inroads there. I've been screaming for a long time that they needed to hire a Jacksonville specialist. I was kind of hoping it would be Dan Dish, uh, but they cannot let guys like that go to Miami. They can't let guys like that go to Georgia. They they have lost so much of a footprint where it got down to where it was basically Lakeland High School, and that's iffy. Like you said, they've got to reestablish, and like you said, Tampa, Orlando. I think Peyton Kirkland that's on the list right now has been crystal ball to Miami. Still early. You could see that change with, with Napier having a chance there, but um, I, I think you were correct, Will. I think they've got to reassert themselves at home. Not just offensive line either, and that would be a no. theme coming up in in recruiting. Of course, is hitting hitting the state of Florida much harder uh, and getting those top athletes. And what we're seeing, I mean, just the articles the last few days coming out where Florida is really hitting you know, this twenty three class, the in state, the top talent in state. Plenty of time to get into that. Uh, we'll be I'll be hitting that twenty three class uh, next week uh, on the podcast, looking at top targets, looking at the state of Florida uh, that Florida must get. But Bill, one more thought from you on this offensive line like I you've kind of hinted at it you've been you're, you're high on Napier and you're high on Rob Sell throw, throw that pairing in there for what we can see at offensive line uh, as he leads the charge for the Gators I think that Napier has put together an offensive line staff that is as good as I could have expected he went out and got an NFL coach and Rob Sale and they have familiarity because before his year with the Giants uh, he had the fifth or sixth best average nationally in pro football, not pro football focus. It was uh, football outsiders, advanced metrics, um, really great uh, statistical measures there from the offensive lines. They're putting pros in the league. He completely overwhelmed the offensive line and recruiting effort there. Uh, in the 16 or 17 years prior to Napier's arrival at ULL, um, that's like a two-star program there. They had only landed four three-star offensive linemen in those 16, 17 years. Well, he and Sale come in and land five in the bump class alone. And I know that's not going to cut it at Florida. I know that that's not proof that it's going to scale upward and, and he's going to show the same type of improvement at Florida. But it's, like I said in the article, it's evidence of plus recruiting. So when you look at he's got a five-man staff for the offensive line, two, two primary coaches, so they're going to get twice the hands-on instruction at practice. They're going to get twice the primary staff recruiting focus. They're going to have lots of help around them. He had a, a Super Bowl starter uh, as in Darnell Stapleton. Uh, so these players are going to hear what it's like from the player's perspective. They're going to hear what it's like to get in the league from a coach's perspective. They're going to have Cheston Blackshear there in their ear, who was an all-SEC performer. He has a national championship ring. They're, he's, they're going to teach them what it takes to get there. And I'm, I'm really high on how he's approaching this. I'm high on his track record with the offensive line. Now they just have to go out and do it. Any final thoughts there, Will, to follow up with Bill? Nah, I mean, it's it's what I've sort of been saying this whole time is that the bump class is where the rubber meets the road. It always has. I mean, you look at the 2016 class for McIlwain, that's, that's a big reason why he's gone. You look at the 2019 class for Mullen, that's almost exclusively the reason why he's gone. And so the I 2020 – I don't want to look at it. I don't <laughs> so the 2023 class is going to be the thing that we look at at Napier, and we are going to know in August or September of this year, whether Napier and his staff and everything he's built and all the concessions that he's gotten from the UAA and all the different things that he's built here in terms of process, we're going to know in August or September 
whether all that's good enough, right? And if it's not, then we got to have some real honest questions about why it's not enough because you're talking four straight coaches where then, yeah. you know, it, it hasn't been enough and, the, and there have been some issues there. But, you know, this idea that there's going to be a slow build, I don't think that's true. I think at the end of the day, you're either a salesman or you're not. You either put the process in place or you don't. And at the end of the day, we, we've heard a lot about process from Billy Napier, but at the but the the rubber meets the road in 2023. So I'm I'm encouraged by his history at Louisiana. I'm encouraged by his history of the offensive line at Louisiana. I'm encouraged by his process. You know, he talked about on National Signing Day how he went out and I think I even said this last week, but how he went out and he talked about um, you know focusing on the 2022 class and then scheduling 2023 players sort of around that. But that's not true because he was going to local high schools and so the pictures that he's taking with the local high school coaches the willingness to go and build those relationships with the high school coaches indicates a process that you hope is going to yield results at the end of the day but you know it's all talk until you see the five stars side on the dotted line right like harold perkins went to lsu and so as of right now, we're still not getting what we need to get. And so, um, you know, we will see as things move forward. I am encouraged. I think some of the stuff Bill looked at here makes me encouraged. I love the idea that there's two offensive line coaches and they got five guys hands on in that room. But, you know, we, we've been encouraged at changes at the coaching position before, and I don't want to get burned again. I want to say, look, we know by August or September, we'll have a clear picture of whether this process is turning into results. Just like, you know, at the end of the first quarter, when you look at how a quarterback's playing, sometimes you're like, all right, I already know how the second, third, and fourth quarter are going to turn out. In recruiting, it's sort of the same thing, right? You, the first quarter is that bump class, and you know basically before the season even starts how that's going to, how that's going to look. And so to me, that's that's a huge, huge, huge um, sort of benchmark for Napier. If, if in June, July and August, you know, we got Friday night lights, and you got six guys committing and, you know, four of them are in the top 100 and three of them are in the top 50. You know, all of a sudden you go, OK, the process is yielding results. But until you see those results being yielded, it's all just it's all just talk. Yeah, here, we need to see this. Like Corey Bender just tagged me in a tweet on Twitter. Gators knocked it out of the park when recently hosting highly regarded DB Tony Mitchell, a five-star DB, one of the top DBs in the nation. Quote, Coach Napier really got the right people there. I feel like he would turn the program around. Okay. After that, we need to see a commitment. You know, cause right. coming up in the coming months, that needs to be a commitment. That, that, that quote, these visits, that everything right there needs to turn into a commitment. So there's your process. There's your goals. There's what we need to see coming up for this 2023 class. Yeah, Man. agreed. <laughs> we, we have a consensus. <laughs> we have a consensus, and it's not breaking news. You know, we're not uh, no. not telling people what we don't, they, what they don't already know. But you know, we, the examples we keep bringing up just really emphasizes and reemphasizes what needs to be done, and maybe even how it needs to be done. It's not changing, folks. <laughs> yeah. No, and I, here's the one thing I will say though. My concern is that Napier, even if he does the right thing, is going to be walking a tightrope because right now the roster is not in great shape. And I, hey, if if AR15 is the next Cam, then maybe they could be in the championship game next year. I mean, who knows? But if he's not, and if they don't get some weird influx of superb talent through the portal. Uh, I'm just not convinced this roster is going to be ready to compete for a couple of years. Uh, now, maybe they have some good seasons, 
uh, but it would take you know some fluky circumstances to get over the hill. Even if he goes out and lands a top five class in 2023, well, that that class is not going to be ready to lead the team until at least their third year, which is Napier's fourth. So what we really need to hope for is that we see tangible progress and good process. And so if let's say that this is a dangerous young team by year four and he's not over the hump, but recruiting momentum is starting to sustain itself. Well, now we've got something where we can say, you know what, maybe this guy is going to make one of those rare long-term rebuilds, Uh, but it all starts in recruiting and it's going to, it's going to be telling within the next nine, 10 months. There you go, Bill. You, you said the magic word, show me sustainability. Show, show me. And look, I don't even, you know, even the, even the signing class itself, as we've just shown in this episode, won't be enough. Show me those guys are going to stick around. Show me those guys are going to be right. on the roster in year two and year three and year four contributing. That's part of the game now. That's part of the game now. Uh, the, only, the only thing I will say to that is if you look at the 2020 class, which is really the one that Napier is going to be relying on this year, because that's, you know, you count back three years. If you look at the playoff teams mm-hmm. this year, all their all SEC guys came from a recruiting class from three years ago, or the vast majority of their all SEC guys, except for Alabama, who actually got to the championship a year early. And their guys came from the 2021 <laughs> class for the most part. But, you know, you've got guys like Gervon Dexter, right? Derek Wingo and Spurts has played decently. Xavier Henderson has been a solid addition, not necessarily a star. You've got um, you've got Anthony Richardson. To your point, if he turns into a star, then this class looks way different than it did before. Human Melan has looked pretty good when he's been on the field. Josh Braun at least has been a solid solid starter at guard. You look at Rashad Torrance, Avery Helm, Mordecai McDaniel. Um, and Trevez Johnson, those guys have all been out on the field. Now, have they been out on the field because of the 2019 debacle or have they been out on the, but they've been out on the field and they've gotten experience, right? And so you're not starting with the 2020 and 2021 classes having zero experience, especially on the defensive side of the ball. You add Jason Marshall from last year. If Kamari Wilson turns out to be really good, then, you know, we're not, at least I'm not saying this is going to be a four and eight year while Napier rebuilds things. I think what you're going to find is that you're going to struggle against the Utahs and the Georgias and perhaps the LSUs and, and those teams, those teams of those ilks, right? Cause we got a and M on the schedule this year too. But then you got to take care of business and should be able to take care of business against, you know, Vanderbilt and Kentucky and Missouri and those sorts of things. And that's sort of, I think, where at least on a football side, I'll be evaluating Napier and his process in terms of coaching and making decisions and that sort of stuff is do his guys come out? Are they ready to play? Are the special teams better? Because the special teams, quite honestly, are, are an effort thing, right? An effort and a focus thing. Um, as opposed to necessarily just a talent thing. And so those are the types of things I think you look at while you're sort of waiting for that bump class to come in. But, you know, Nick Saban didn't win the national championship with his bump class. Those guys supplemented a little bit. He won the national championship. It, well, the bump class because he, he waited three years. But Urban Meyer didn't win it with his bump class. He won it with Ron Zook's players or a large portion of Ron Zook's players. And obviously Zook was a, was a better recruiter than these guys. But I think if you look back historically, you'll see the same thing with these teams that see a large jump in performance in U2. A lot of that is just because the classes before them have come together and coalesced. And uh, you know, hopefully there's an opportunity for Florida to do that. Because when you go down the list, it, it's actually a pretty decent list. Of, for that 2020 class. I have some hope when I'm looking at that as opposed to just saying, oh, the roster's in disarray. I think that 2020 class with what was supplemented last year with Jason Marshall and some of those guys could be good, but a lot of that's going to come down to Napier and his ability to get the most out of those guys. I'm here for it. We're ready for it. Like I said, as the start of the episode, hopefully when he's hoisting that trophy in a few years, 
we'll take a look back at this episode and be like, okay, this is what he dug himself out of. This is what he walked into. This is what he dug himself out of. And as Will said earlier too, enjoy it. We, we, can, we can enjoy it, hopefully. We'll, we'll, I'll enjoy the build, as Bill said. You know, if we see some tangible progress or sustainability in these coming up years, part of football will be fun. I'm all for that. I can, I can wait as long as the process looks sound. Could be worse. We could be going into year five of Chip Kelly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, going back to your Auburn and Brian Harson example earlier. Could could be there as well. <laughs> oh, that's going to get weird. <laughs> oh, right. Bill, man, thanks for hopping on with us again. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thank you guys. It's always fun. I was gonna say, if you want, if you want more, Bill, Gators Breakdown Plus Discord server. Bill there. You can interact with Bill uh, there. Will's jumping in lately a little bit more too. So good to see that. Uh, but uh, Bill shamed Will. me into, into showing up. He started calling me a Georgia fan in there. <laughs> I had to come up and, and defend myself. <laughs> uh, but yeah, good stuff. You know, speaking of Gators Breakdown Plus, I will have a Q&A episode up later for uh, members, uh, exclusive for members there. So if you want that recruiting for 2023 will be the hot topic for that. So if you want that extra episode, join Gators Breakdown Plus. The link is in the description there. And all uh, Wednesday night, I'll be on Gator Collective Twitter spaces uh, with a few players there, talking to some players about the early impact of Billy Napier and what those guys are, are looking forward to. Justin Shorter, Trey Dean uh, will we'll be on that. So uh, really, really looking forward to that uh, Twitter spaces on Wednesday night. Go to Gator Collective for all the details uh, on that. So, uh, Will, what you got coming up before we uh, uh, riding riding Bill all week with that with that offensive line article? Uh, no, I'm working on something on Anthony Richardson. Um, you know, the question is, can he turn the corner? What did he show us? I think there's some interesting statistical takeaways there. And then, like I mentioned, I'm working on something. It probably won't be this week, but it's a little bit larger project that I can take on during the offseason, looking at stuff all the way back to 1989, sort of how offenses have changed and what does that mean in terms of Billy Napier and what he's going to be trying to run, um, looking at what he's doing, what he's been doing at Louisiana. And is he going to continue to be able to do that? Or is he going to have to make some changes now that he's in the big, bad SEC? Yeah. And Will and I have been talking behind the scenes, too. We've been looking at, uh, at least on the defensive side, researching Patrick Tony uh, and his kind of scheme and what he's been uh, bringing up. So we'll be having that uh, coming up with Gators Breakdown in the coming weeks as well. So all right, that'll do it for this episode of Gators Breakdown. I am your host, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. For Will and for Bill, thank you for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown. <laughs>